0: Please stand for the the word, God's word. Today's reading is from 1 Peter 3, 13, 17. It's taken from the English Standard Version. It's in the Pew Bibles. Now, who, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to keep them open to the book of 1 Peter as we pray together this morning. God, today I am grateful for your church. I'm grateful for the ways in which you are at work here in this place as we read and drink deeply from your word. I pray that you would do that this morning. But as we read these, words from 1 Peter chapter 3, that you would be at work in us and that you would remind us of your great love for us, your closeness to us, and reassure us this morning as we read these words. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, amen. Well, the nearly 2,000 years or just over 2,000 years of church history are full of stories of faithful and courageous champions of faith. Men and women who have stood in the face of threat, rejection, violence, and even death to honor Christ and preach the gospel. As I thought through countless examples of this, I was reminded of the story of John Wycliffe, who was executed for his work to translate the Bible into the language of common people so that they could read it for themselves. I thought of Jan Hus, the reformer from Prague, who was condemned for his criticism of the severe moral failings in the priesthood and was given the chance to recant at the very last second. But with his last words, he declared the message of the gospel, even as his executioner lit the fire that would burn him alive. I thought of the missionary team in Ecuador in the 1950s who risked and ultimately gave their lives to see the salvation of an unreached people group. One of them, Jim Elliott, famously said that he is no fool who gives what what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I thought of An I Suk, a Christian woman who lived in Japanese occupied Korea and was imprisoned for her faith in 1939. She worked at a school and when military forces told everyone that they must bow to a shrine for their son God, she was the one person who refused. She was arrested and would spend the next six years imprisoned in absolutely brutal conditions. But she had anticipated that that would happen. Because she knew that she wouldn't have access to a Bible in prison, she memorized over 100 chapters of Scripture. And while she was there during the six years that she was in prison, she led many other prisoners to faith and even several guards Her scripture memorization made her imprisonment an opportunity to glorify God and to lead others to faith and salvation. And now her story is an enduring example of courage and faithfulness to Christ that continues to inspire Christians to be faithful and courageous in their own lives. Because the fact of the matter is that being a Christian comes at a cost. Now, that cost varies, of course, depending on our circumstances— But stories like hers are important because at various times and in various ways, every Christian will face the fact that because we follow Christ and belong to him, we simply do not fit in in this world. Even if we never face true persecution like she did, every Christian will eventually discover that belonging to Christ has made us out of place here. Strangers and exiles, as Peter says in chapter 2 of this letter who will face difficulties in this world because of it. So like An-Isuk, who memorized 100 chapters of Scripture in preparation for a prison term that she knew was coming, we do well to prepare for the challenges that we know we will face so that we can seize the opportunity that they represent to glorify God and to lead others to faith and salvation. As we open the book of First Peter this morning, we're looking at a passage that was written to a whole region in what is now the nation of Turkey. In the first century, it was actually several Roman provinces in which Christianity had begun to take root. Churches were being planted and they were growing. People were being converted. And the fellowship of God's people in those provinces was becoming more and more visible to everyone else. And as a result of that, friction had begun to develop. Though state-sanctioned persecution had not gotten underway yet, Christians were coming to face this reality that we've been talking about, that their faith made them outsiders in this world. They were beginning to feel pressure to abandon Christ from family members, from neighbors and friends who did not subscribe to these new Christian beliefs and practices, mainly through strained relationships and economic pressures and verbal abuse. Rarely did it go beyond that, though occasionally there were acts of violence carried out against Christians. Throughout this letter, Peter makes clear that Christians should not be surprised when the world around them rejects their faith. He wants these believers to know that what they are experiencing is neither atypical nor a sign that God has abandoned them. In fact, he says the opposite that God even uses hardships like the ones that they're facing right now to refine their faith. It will be a message that will become even more important to remember as the years go by. Peter's counsel about enduring persecution will prove to be prophetic because within just a year or two of the authorship of this letter, the Roman emperor Nero will carry out a sweeping and incredibly violent campaign against Christians throughout the empire. And when that persecution reaches these believers, they will have this assuring word to cling to. As we'll see here in chapter 3 today, they will be better prepared to meet it with courage and faithfulness to Christ. He begins in verse 13 by asking a rhetorical question. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The implied answer is no one. He's not asking, who will try to harm you, but who can? Who could possibly do this? Many will certainly try. The years that are just ahead will prove that. But no one is able to harm those who are passionate about doing good, who live upright and godly lives, and who are dependent on the Holy Spirit and look to Christ according to the hope of the gospel. But how does that square with what Peter says elsewhere in this letter? In fact, all through this letter, He tells them to expect fiery trials, intense suffering, and that when that suffering does inevitably come, they should entrust their souls to God. Peter is making a critical distinction here between earthly struggle and eternal security. He wants these believers to keep things in perspective. When Jesus was preparing his disciples, including Peter himself, for his own arrest and terrifying days which would follow, he said to them, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Though life in this world will certainly be full of difficulty, opposition, rejection, and even persecution for some, Christians can persevere because our Savior and our salvation transcend this world. Peter would learn firsthand that even though enemies might take his home, his friends, his life, everything else that, they had, that he had, they could not take eternity from him. So he says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. If and when suffering does come for righteousness' sake, because you belong to Christ, God will still be with you that he will still be for you. Don't make the mistake of thinking that suffering means God doesn't care. It's the point that Peter is making here. He he uses an interesting Greek grammatical feature here which expresses that something is unlikely. Even if you're made to suffer for your faith, he says, even if that does actually happen, God will bless you in and through it because he is sovereign and he loves you. I think that's a worthwhile thing to mention because it prevents us from falling into the sort of mindset that that sees enemies and threats everywhere. The fact is that even though there have been countless martyrs throughout Christian history, and even though there were more Christians killed for their faith in the 20th century than in the 19th centuries before it put together, most of us will never face anything like that. Instead, Will face the sort of things that Peter's readers were facing at the time that they received this letter. Cultural pressure. We will lose friendships and other important relationships. We will miss out on career opportunities and social standing if we stand boldly for Christ. But we probably won't lose our lives. But that pressure remains. And it's a pressure that, though not severe or shocking, when it is applied for years and years and years, can wear us down, and that is why Peter has written this letter. He wanted believers in the first century and afterward to know that even in the face of that pressure, and that even if it gets worse than that, God is not far off and is instead leading us forward, where we have an opportunity and a calling. Peter's hope is that Christians will persevere in such a way that our lives reflect the glory of God and the hope of the gospel itself, though the temptation will be to take one of two easier paths. The first is something called syncretism. Syncretism is the blending of ideologies and worldviews in which both are manipulated and corrupted, and it produces an incomplete gospel that cannot save. In syncretistic Christianity, problematic ideas are jettisoned so that the doctrines of the church are more culturally acceptable. A common example that we hear is to do with the Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which is criticized as unnecessary, archaic, barbaric, and ultimately an act of divine child abuse. In our modern ears, hearing that the death of Christ is what atones for our sin, it's the only thing that could atone for our sin, and that it was God's own will to crush His Son, and that we must trust in this atoning sacrifice in order to be saved, in our modern ears, that message clashes with the way that we feel God ought to conduct Himself. So we're tempted to replace that difficult, though biblical, doctrine with some different idea to see Christ merely as a moral example, someone who shows us how to love and how to be righteous people so that with an example to follow, we are able to make ourselves into the people that God calls us to be, who, who look like and live like his son. That to be saved, what we need is not a barbaric sacrifice, but a loving example to emulate. Those two ways of thinking about Jesus, about his saving work and what it means To be rescued by him are different, not just in the terminology terminology that they use, but in the very roots of their beliefs, so that they produce essentially different faiths. The same is true anytime we adapt the Christian message to suit the preferences of this cultural moment. Syncretized faith compromises the integrity of the gospel, it undermines the authority of scripture. Underrepresents the holiness of God and it badly mischaracterizes the capacity of fallen people to do good and pursue righteousness in our own strength. Under cultural pressure, we will be tempted to chip off parts of the gospel that are problematic and that clash with our modern sensibilities. Here we are in the 21st century. We will be tempted to compromise the integrity of the gospel. But There's a second path we might be tempted to take. Recent research confirms that the overwhelming majority, over 90 percent, of practicing committed evangelicals acknowledge a personal responsibility to share their faith with others. The vast majority of practicing committed evangelicals say this is a calling and a priority. However, the same research indicates that evangelicals also have some of the highest rates of failure to follow through from conviction to action when it comes to sharing their faith. It's something we know we should do and even something we want to do, yet for some reason we struggle to get out there and actually do it. There are many reasons for that failure to follow through, but they're all rooted in what Peter's addressing here in this letter, because doing so is risky. We fear the, 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 the feeling of rejection or even just the awkwardness that sharing our faith might produce. Or we fear the loss of relationships or, or being seen as intolerant or as a weirdo who actually believes what other, others think is pure fantasy. Or perhaps we're nervous to navigate the complex theological conversations that we anticipate or the uncomfortable feeling that comes from saying that there is only one path to heaven and fulfillment in this life, and it's this one. That is, perhaps, the biggest obstacle in a postmodern world. The Christian claim of exclusivity, which says that life and joy and fellowship with God are to be found only in one place, in one faith, and in one Savior, and it's this one, testified to in Scripture, nowhere else. That's an intimidating conversation to have. So we're tempted to take the second path, to withdraw, to cloister ourselves away, and to be silent about the holiness of God and the reality of sin and judgment and grace and the weight of eternity, because to speak boldly about these things would be risky. Syncretism and withdrawal are the paths that we are tempted to take as we follow Christ while living in a fallen world. But Peter wants all Christians to consider a third path one that he points to in this passage. He wants believers to persevere and to do so boldly, compassionately, and with love for the lost. And that perseverance is rooted in three things that Peter highlights in this passage. That Christians should have no fear, that Christians should answer opponents with gentleness and respect, and thirdly, that Christians should suffer well if God should bring difficult seasons into our lives. Or we might say, I'm really proud of myself for for this, just I want you to know that I I am so proud of what I'm about to say. We might say that looking to Christ, all believers will live with courage, conviction, and conscience. I'm not great at like the alliteration thing, and I just was really thrilled that that came together this week. (laughs) Courage, conviction, conscience. First, he calls believers to live without fear. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. For while the pressure is low right now, and Christians' concern for being yelled at is the the biggest of their concerns right now, this is an instruction that I think they can follow easily. It's easy to live without fear when the stakes are low. But when, in just a year or so, Christians across the Roman Empire are suddenly being arrested, imprisoned, abused, and killed as Peter seems to anticipate maybe coming, it will be harder to live without fear. Because fear isn't something we can just switch off. If suddenly I noticed a spider crawling up my arm while preaching this sermon, I, I, I like to think that I would stay cool and collected, and that I could just carry on preaching and flick the spider away. But in reality, when we're faced with something that we fear, instinct takes over, and rationality and reason fly out the window. So rather than staying calm, I would probably scream and make a fool of myself. (laughs) Peter knows that dark days are ahead when blood will be spilled, and he is not just speaking in platitudes saying, don't worry about that, just be cool. Because if that were all he said, fear would take over. He's encouraging these people to find their courage In God Himself and in His love for them. In the verses that precede our passage, Peter quotes from Psalm 34, which was written by David during a dark time in his own life. David was being hunted by King Saul, and David saw uh, uh, even uh, uh, King Saul, who saw David as a threat, even though David had done nothing wrong. Saul was consumed with paranoia and madness, and he had brought his army to find David and kill him. And during that pursuit, David had two chances to sneak up on Saul and to kill him. Both times, though, he refused, even though his closest friends who were with him encouraged him to do so as a way of protecting and defending himself. With his life on the line in circumstances that would make anyone afraid, David was not ruled by fear. His actions were not governed by his fear. Instead, David chose to trust God to defend him. And he wrote this psalm, which includes the words, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That doesn't mean that God rewards well-behaved people with comfortable, easy lives, free of danger. It means that God will not abandon those who seek him and who look to him in their distress. Peter, quoting these words, knows that in Christ, eternity is secure. There's nothing that that can break that or corrupt it. We heard that in our call to worship this morning, that the inheritance that is being kept for us is imperishable and undefiled. Nothing can break it. That even if God leads his people through seasons of suffering and hardship in this world, eternity is secure. Persecutors, accusers, and earthly threats cannot turn God's eye away from you or his heart from loving you. The key to living without fear in the face of such evil as Roman persecution or, or King Saul's madness and paranoia and murderous threats is not stealing your resolve to be tough. It is in casting all of your hope, all of it, on the promise that God sees his people through suffering and into glory forever. Countless martyrs in the history of the church testify to the strength and courage that come from looking beyond earthly circumstances, saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Secondly, Peter calls believers to defend the faith. He says they should Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. At first glance, I think that sounds like a wonderful situation, the sort of thing we wish would happen more often. Friends and neighbors coming up to us and saying, wow, you seem so fulfilled and so joyful, so hopeful. Can you tell me more about this Jesus that you worship? I'd like to know him like you do. Except I don't think that's the situation that Peter has in mind. Two clues tip us off. First, he says these Christians must be ready to defend their faith. That's a word used in antiquity in legal settings when someone has been accused of a crime and must defend themselves against an allegation. Secondly, he says that we ought to respond with gentleness and respect. That instruction would not be necessary if this were an all-around civil conversation. Peter knows that the pressure will mount that questions will turn into disagreements, which will then turn into accusations and will at some point turn into condemnations. And being condemned, the natural response is to respond in the same way because it works. We only need to spend just a little bit of time paying attention to American politics to see how tempting it is to attack someone on the other side of a debate in order to gain the upper hand. It works. But Peter says not so with God's people. The Christian response calls for gentleness and respect, patience and long-suffering and willingness to listen, all while making a stalwart defense of the gospel. That defense demands preparation that comes with study, from thinking deeply, from fellowship with fellow believers who are also thinking through these things. No one shows up to the Boston Marathon on race day, to the starting line, without having spent months getting ready, not only physically, but mentally too. The marathon of the Christian life demands preparation and effort. Without effort, we risk being overwhelmed and failing to give a defense of the faith either by syncretizing or withdrawing or by answering accusing questions with anger and scorn and dismissiveness or pride. Just like the Boston Marathon is not something you finish well without lots of preparation, so too with the Christian life. That's why we put so much effort into things like the Life on Mission conference. This year we focused on this prep work, on on getting ready for the questions which will arise, which will definitely arise when we share our faith, when we must defend the gospel. And we must do so with gentleness and respect for all those who bear the image of God, who are loved so dearly by him, but do not know him yet. Peter leaves no room for Christians lashing out at those who do not know Christ. Even when attacked, as Peter himself and the first readers of this letter will be, there is no going on the offensive. Instead, we see that the best Most effective strategy is to let our lives prove the gospel. Peter writes in verse 16, Have a clear conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The best defense, Peter is saying, will not come from gaining the upper hand. It will be by enduring slander with grace in a way that proves the gospel right and our accusers wrong. Bitterness must not be the posture of Christians toward the rest of the world, but it will be if we are not adequately prepared to defend what God has revealed and which has captivated our hearts. Thirdly, Peter calls Christians to suffer well. When accusations come, as Peter knows that they will, he says, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter has a profound confidence in God's love and mercy and also in his sovereign rule over the darkest days of our lives. So he calls his brothers and sisters in faith to suffer well if God should lead them into it. We know, of course, we know that what we face, the cultural pressure that we face as Christians living in New England Is not the same as what our brothers and sisters face who live in Russia or China or parts of the Middle East or North Africa. There is simply no comparing. Our lives, our freedom to gather and open God's Word, to sing and to pray together, are privileges that many Christians around the world do not have and which we thank God for. But what we see in the persecuted church around the world today is courageous faithfulness to God, suffering for doing what is right and for holding to the gospel, not fear. The church is growing in the places where it is most threatened because, as Peter says, it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It says something about who God is and what it's worth to know him and be loved by him when his people endure suffering for his sake. So Peter encourages all Christians, not just those who live in hard-to-live places, to meet whatever suffering may come as a result of our faith, to meet it with courage. He tells them that that if they suffer for doing good, it is not because God is asleep at the wheel or he doesn't care, but because God has willed it. God has brought it about. God, in his wisdom and his sovereignty and his goodness, has not lost control, nor has he abandoned his people. He ordains hard and heartbreaking things for his people's good and for his glory. So that when the day of suffering comes, Peter wants these people to be ready and to meet it and to suffer well, to stay the course, to focus on Christ and on reaching the lost, not to give up or to lose hope. For Peter, this paragraph was surely a humbling thing to write. Because on the darkest day of his life, he failed spectacularly to do any of it. When Jesus was dragged in chains to the house of the high priest to be interrogated, Peter and a group of onlookers waited outside. It was the middle of the night, so they huddled around fires to stay warm. Most of the disciples had fled, but Peter needed to see what was happening, so he watched from a distance. This man that he had followed for three years, whom he had declared to be the Christ, God's promised Messiah and Savior for the world, who had fed the hungry and healed the sick and walked on water and raised the dead, was inconceivably being convicted and condemned. And while Peter waited and watched, a servant girl saw him in the light of the fire and asked, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter said, I am not. He was afraid. Being accused by a little girl of being associated with Jesus, he wilted. He did not speak the truth. He did not defend his faith in Christ by telling her about the miraculous things that he had seen, that Christ had done, or the countless prophecies that he had fulfilled. He did not, could not, even conceive of what might happen to him if it was found that he was one of Jesus' friends and the suffering that that might entail. So he lied. And then he did it two more times when others asked him if he knew Jesus. What's remarkable to me about this is that this is the man who is now telling people that they must live for Christ with courage, with conviction and conscience, that they must suffer well when that day comes, things that he himself had utterly failed to do even though he was one of Jesus's closest companions. It's amazing because now as he writes this letter, Peter is a changed man. He goes about planting churches and teaching and will eventually be martyred himself. He endured much affliction, abuse, and the pursuit of those who wanted his life for years all without choosing the paths of either syncretism or withdrawal. The man who feared for his life at the question of a little girl is now a courageous man who will boldly call the most powerful people in the world to humble themselves before Jesus Christ. That is quite a transformation. And it all began when Peter saw Jesus succeed where he himself had failed. So as Peter teaches these Christians to live with courage and conviction and conscience, he is not saying, I am the model of this, look to me and be like me. He is saying, look to Christ who has gone ahead of you through all of this already. Look to Christ who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, we read in Hebrews 12. He was not afraid but looked beyond the shame and pain of the cross to the joyful day on which its work would be applied to his people and they would join him in eternity. When he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he stood his ground. Three times the devil sought to lure him into a trap and to accuse him, and he answered every time with Scripture, defending what he knew to be true. When he was tested by the Pharisees and the scribes during his ministry, he was never caught off guard, but was ready to point people to the kingdom of God where they would receive mercy. And he suffered for doing good. And he met that suffering with incredible grace that amazed everyone who saw it. When he hung on the cross, he prayed for his executioners, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He didn't attack. He didn't try to gain the upper hand prayed for the people who drove nails through his hands and feet. It was such a stunning moment that not long afterward, when he died, the Roman centurion who stood nearby was simply overwhelmed. Mark 15 tells us that when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, this is the way that this man dies, the Roman centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God. The gentleness and compassion of Christ even even in his labored, dying breaths, was so compelling, so shocking to this battle-hardened soldier that he could not deny that something incredible and tragic had just happened and that the grace of God was being poured out. In this message from 1 Peter, there are lots of instructions for Christians on how to live the Christian life in a fallen world, but there is only one imperative. Grammatically speaking, it's like a flashing light written in big, bold letters when Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It is the heart of this message that he wants these afflicted Christians to hear, and all afflicted Christians throughout the history of the church. Amid trials, honor Christ. In the face of loss, honor Christ. When persecuted, honor Christ. And this is how Christians are to honor Christ in this world. Courage, conviction, conscience. Not by forfeiting the integrity of the gospel, not by withdrawing to safety, but by living without fear, ready to defend the faith and willing to suffer well. Because that is what Christ has done for you and me. Peter grounds all of this in that reminder in verse 18, which makes all the difference. For, he says... Christ also suffered once for, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is the thing that transformed Peter. It is the thing that made Jan Hus and Aunty and John Wycliffe and countless others men and women of God who would ultimately give everything for the sake of Christ's kingdom and for the lost who don't know him yet. The sacrificial love of Christ remakes people. It is death to what was and new life in its place. It redeems us from bondage to to sin and fear and shame and sets us free to live with courage in the face of threat because we know that God's love is sufficient and he has made our eternity secure. So as we live our lives in this world, we, we know that living boldly for Christ will come at a cost. We don't deny it. We face it head on. We do it rather than withdraw or adjust the gospel because we know that the cost to bring us into the very family of God has already been paid and that we belong to him forever. Let's honor Christ, always ready to meet the challenges that will come from doing so with courage and conviction and conscience. Would you pray with me? father we are humbled this morning by your love for us we know that we are sinners unworthy to be called your children yet you have called us your sons and daughters by grace may we be people who always remember that we were shown grace and mercy and that now we honor your son by living according to that grace and mercy We pray that you would protect us from hardship and suffering, but that if it is your will for us to endure seasons of suffering, that we would do so with Christ-like character, faithful, steadfast, and committed above all to your glory. Make us ready for the lives that you call us to live in this world and bring us through the path ahead and into your very presence, Lord. We pray according to the, the hope of the message of salvation, the gospel. We gather this morning and we come before you in the name of your Son. Amen.